Welcome to the Pathfinder Podcast from Lancer Capital, where we interview subject matter experts to help us in the small business community navigate some of the most difficult business challenges. Welcome to episode four of the Pathfinder Podcast. It's been a little while since our last episode, but you know, we've been really busy. I, you know, it's it's probably a good sign for the market returning to normal and business and M&A activity picking back up. Uh, you know, we're excited that business owners are back with confidence in selling their business, seeing growth in their companies and getting past the challenges of COVID and hopefully seeing a return to normal. Um, so th- it's all been positive over the last few months and I think it's gonna be a strong end to 2021. You know, with that said, thanks for your feedback on our last episode, and we were glad to hear that some of the points that were made during that episode from our conversations with Mark Borda and Matt Bradbury were helpful to folks, you know, thinking about a potential exit in their business. And, you know, if there's anything we can do to help or, uh, you know, discuss, as always, feel free to to reach out to us at podcast at lancercm.com. So, you know, we all know that 2020 was an interesting and challenging year, but in all great challenges come great opportunities. And we're excited to have Colleen Gerda and Sarah Abdel Razik from Riveter Capital on with us today. Interestingly, I graduated business school with Colleen, and it turns out that we both decided to launch our own platform firms in 2020. So, Obviously, that came with its own fair share of challenges, and you know we're excited to just talk about what that's been like, what the market is like, and learn a little bit more about Riveter Capital today. So, you know, we think they fill a big market gap, and we're looking forward to talking with them about what makes them unique, what it was like starting a new platform in 2020, and how we see the market shaping up in 2021. So, with that said, we hope you enjoy the episode. All right. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We're uh, really excited to be here with Colleen Gerda and Sarah Abdel Razik. Uh, really looking forward to getting their insights on their firm and as well as you know sharing some insights on Lancer Capital. Uh, one of the reasons we wanted to do this episode was, you know, we both launched uh, our own firms in 2020, which you know, looking back, I don't think we had a crystal ball that a global pandemic would happen and we'd be dealing with all of that yet. Uh, here we are. And so uh, it'll be great to kind of just chat a little bit about our experiences uh, launching a firm, what we've learned thus far, what the environment's been like. And uh, also, I think what makes us different and what our value proposition is to the market. And especially uh, for Colleen and Sarah at Riveter Capital, you know, we think that they bring a pretty compelling and uh, unique approach to the market. And so we're excited to hear from them as uh, as we chat today. So Colleen, Sarah, thanks for joining us. And Maybe if we can start, just introduce yourselves and uh, give your quick background for everybody listening. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Josh, for having us. Um, hi, everyone. This is Colleen Gerda speaking. As Josh mentioned, Sarah and I co-founded Riveter Capital last year. Um, for background, Riveter Capital is a private equity firm focused on investing in women or minority-owned or led businesses in the lower middle market. And we define the lower middle market as $1 million to $5 million of EBITDA. 
we are one of the only, if not the only U.S. buyout firm that is women business enterprise certified, which means upon a change of control transaction, we can maintain an existing WBE certification, or if it makes sense to do so, i.e. in the case of a government services company, for instance, we can get the company WBE certified. Um, we are currently operating as an independent sponsor and looking to do two to three deals per year. Uh, I am an investor by background, so I started my career in investment banking and then spent the past 15 years or so in investing roles at various private investment firms, whereas Sarah brings more of the operating experience and has spent over a decade at various consulting roles, including interim management positions to help really drive execution of growth. Yeah, great. Sarah, maybe tell us a little bit about your background in, uh, in more detail. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, thank you, Colleen. That was a perfect overview of our firm. Um, as Colleen mentioned, I, I'm more of an operations background. Uh, I started my career at PwC in the transaction services practice, uh, working primarily with large private equity firms doing due diligence, uh, both financial and operational. I then moved over to Alvarez and Marcel, where I spent some time in the turnaround and restructuring space, working on a very large corporate restructuring transactions, very balance sheet focused. Um, and then moved over to a uh, the founding team member, a middle market consulting firm called Meru, um, where we focus on the lower end of the market, working primarily again with private equity firms, uh, doing operational due diligence uh, pre-deal and then working post-transaction to help with the first 100 day planning, as well as executing and driving uh, implementation of key growth and value creation initiatives. That's great. Yeah, th thanks for providing that background, guys. Um, and I got to ask you, uh, 2020 was an interesting time to start your firm. So maybe we'll uh, we'll start there. And uh, why did you decide to start Riveter? Uh, what what drove you to do it? And, um, you know, tell us a little bit about how things have gotten started for you uh, so far uh, since launching your operation. Yeah, absolutely. Maybe I'll just kick it off here. This is Sarah Abdelrazik speaking. Um, I think why we decided to start Riveter, there's really two main reasons we decided to start Riveter. The first is we thought we saw a market gap um, where you look across the investment landscape. There's a large number of venture capital firms and venture dollars really focused on investing in diverse founders and management teams. And on the other end of the spectrum, there's an incredible amount of private equity dollars targeting businesses with four or five plus of EBITDA. And there's this really nice gap in the market of businesses doing one to five of EBITDA that have proven business models, long-standing operating histories that are primarily run as lifestyle businesses and generating a couple of million dollars of cash per year. Um, these founder-owned businesses need one, access to capital, which we all know is significantly harder for women and minorities, and two, need operational, strategic, and financial horsepower to really help scale and get their businesses to the next level. And need operational, strategic, and financial horsepower to help scale them and get them to four plus of EBITDA, where you open up an entire universe of strategic and financial buyers. Um, I think given Colleen and I's complementary investing and operating background, we realized that we had the right experience to help close the access to capital gap for diverse founders with limited competition while generating great returns for our investors. And I think the second main reason we started Riveter is really our passion. And having spent most of our careers in male-dominated industries, Colleen and I are both very passionate about supporting other women and minorities and seeing more of us succeed. Um, women and minority-owned businesses represent a significant number of U.S. small businesses and receive a small portion of the capital in the market. So part of this passion for us was also taking a risk on ourselves, becoming entrepreneurs, and building something together that allows us to spend our days doing exactly what we want to be doing.
Yeah, that's great. That's uh, th that's really helpful. And you hit on something that's pretty interesting. And I think, um, you know, Lancer Capital, we're not as obviously as much focused on uh, women and minority owned business enterprises. But I think we are focused at a very similar level of uh, the market and sort of the one to five million dollar EBITDA range. You know, we typically play somewhere between five hundred thousand to two and a half million, three million of EBITDA. And it, there's there's very few sophisticated uh, investors, buyers of those businesses, but there's just as much opportunity in those companies. And what we find is there's some really talented managers. There's some really talented executives and they just don't have the bench strength that a larger company might have. And where we see our role, and I think, you know, in sharing some things with you guys, you, you see your role there as well, is we look to be an augmentation or an extension of those management teams. And we can come in and play that role on a fractional basis to work with those full-time executives to help scale the company to a bigger size, to then allow them to add those full-time members of their management team and help create that value. And you know that's where we're really excited and focused. It allows us to bring some operational experience and expertise and, and kind of help build that val value rather than just being a capital source. But I, I think we're very similar in that sense that it's the right focus in the market. There is a gap of real buyers. And I think, especially for you guys, it's an even bigger gap in terms of the niche that you're, you're approaching. And I think it has tremendous opportunity for you guys to create value in the market. So uh, it's, it's always interesting to kind of share those insights of, of where we see the market opportunity. So, you know, as you thought about, um, you know, the independent sponsor model and, you know, we're an ind independent sponsor. I, you know, we, we work with high net worth investors, as I know you guys do as well, um, you know, versus trying to raise a fund. And what's led you to your thinking on on that model and why it might make sense for companies that you're approaching? Yeah, um, I'll take this one, Josh. It's Colleen speaking. So to be candid, it was it was a few reasons. One, as, as Sarah and I said, it's only the two of us. Right. And we have bandwidth issues. So. We decided in the very beginning what our definition of success was, and that's doing two to three deals a year. So as a result, we really decided to focus the majority of our time on deal sourcing, underwriting, and execution. And what we've seen that is that if you get a good deal under exclusivity, there's, there's a real abundance of capital options out there from banks to SBICs to family offices. And so while it does take a bit more time during the transaction process to get individual capital providers up to speed on a deal. We haven't had an issue yet, knock on wood, finding not only capital providers, but also good value-added capital providers. Um, the second reason why we decided to be an independent sponsor was, you know, while Sarah and I have known each other for years, we do come from different firms and therefore we don't have a joint track record. So while we believe our backgrounds and skill sets are the perfect fit to execute on this strategy, institutional investors really look for that history of investing together. So that's unfortunately a hurdle for a lot of women we know in the industry looking to partner with another female to found a firm. But, um, you know, it is what it is. And, and we're trying to build a joint track record together. So perhaps in the future, we'll consider raising a fund. But for the time being, in the first few years of, of Riveter's existence, you know, being an independent sponsor makes the most sense for us. Yeah, it, it it makes sense, and uh, you know certainly understand where you're coming from, and and likewise, you know we also are in the independent uh, sponsor world ourselves. We're not operating uh, with a fund. 
but it, you know, it's interesting. I get, I get asked this question every time we're talking to a management team or a seller or an investment banker or business broker. Uh, the first question is, how do I know you actually have money? Right. And uh, you know, that, that's always an interesting conversation. And you know, I tell people all the time, I'm not going to raise a fund. I'll never raise a fund. Uh, but we do have access to capital. We have relationships with family offices and investors that, you know, want to support us and, and deploy money. And, you know, we can kind of prove that. So there's ways we get past that hurdle on providing support letters or financing uh, commitment letters as part of our process. But the one thing that I really try to sell uh, business owners on and sellers on is in the independent sponsor model, we are able to approach each deal with a specific investment thesis. There's no arbitrary things in the background like time limits on the fund life or investor pressure to exit deals or, or any other things that are maybe outside of the control of that specific investment thesis and that specific company. And so what it allows us to do is, is be more patient, be more flexible and provide a solution to a seller that you know, we can come in and tailor our approach on each specific opportunity to what makes sense for the investment. Um, you know, we, we were just meeting with a company the last few days and, you know, really tried to emphasize that. And it is a hundred percent true in terms of how we approach the market that we can own a business for three years, or we can own a business for, for 15 years. If the investment thesis bears out that that's what we want to do with the company, we have that flexibility. And so, you know, we often hear of funds that come into a deal where it's the last deal in the fund or they're bumping up against their investment cycle. And naturally there's going to be more pressure on that company to hit their growth hurdles in a short period of time than what would be if you were the first deal in a fund. And sometimes th those dynamics can create other issues for companies. So we really like the flexibility and it allows us to really kind of tailor our approach to, you know, what we're doing in the market. So I think that's another key aspect that, you know, we really try to emphasize because, you know, I think it's a differentiator in terms of we can bring that private equity fund capability or knowledge or institutional investment, you know, mindset, but have a much more flexible approach to how we, you know, build build value um, you know, in the companies that we're working with. So I think, you know, with that said, we talked a little bit about the idea of founding, but, you know, the, the firm in 2020 and a global pandemic and, uh, you know, but I have to ask you, like, what's been your most rewarding and favorite part of, you know, kind of managing your own firm and being out on your own, uh, thus far, it obviously comes with a lot of challenges as, as we both know, but, you know, what have you guys really liked and appreciated about being able to, to jumpstart your own opportunity? Yeah, maybe uh, I'll kick it off. This is Sarah speaking. Um, it's hard to pick just one thing. So maybe I'll share just two of my favorite things about uh, managing our own firm. I think the first has to be that I get to spend every day doing something that I really enjoy. And that's trying to identify diverse founders and talking to them about ways that we can help them build on their legacy and scale their businesses. And I think the second thing is the reaction that we get from these diverse founders when we share our mission and investment strategy. It just never gets old. Seeing that power of the relatability when we sit across the table from diverse founders and knowing that we can make a difference, however small it is, in helping these women and minorities, one, create wealth, and two, grow professionally from managing what are generally lifestyle businesses to much larger professionalized businesses. 
And I, I agree with Sarah. I mean, the best part about managing our own firm is that together we get to craft our investment strategy, right? We get to choose what sectors, companies, and entrepreneurs to spend time with and, and where to spend our time. We aren't focused on getting $100 million out the door every year. Every year, And so we can focus on doing really good deals with really good people. Yeah, it is. Uh, I would agree with that from, from my standpoint. Uh, you know, it was a little nerve wracking. You know, we launched January 1st, 2020. Uh, I had zero idea that I was two and a half months away from a complete shutdown of the economy and everything we were going to see and the implications that it would have on uh, you know everything we we're trying to do. I still have boxes uh, in my basement of all kinds of trade show stuff that you know, we were ready to go and, you know, sit down and give people, you know, tchotchkes and swag and, you know, all of that got canceled. And, you know, so it's been a really interesting year with a lot of different dynamics, but you hit the nail on the head. It's really rewarding, um, you know, to be able to approach businesses with your story. Uh, you know, it, for us, it's my story. It's what I believe in. It's the message, the core values, the principles that I want to bring to market. And, you know, previously it's the firm's makeup and how you're representing and, and handling things. And it really, it's been wonderful from my standpoint to really own how I want to approach investing and how I want to go to the market and how I want to find opportunities and create value. And, um, you know, I've also noticed in sitting with management teams, you know, the passion I'm able to speak with because it's, I believe in it. And it's like I said, it's it's my story. It's not, you know, a firm approach where there's a broad, you know, level of thinking and a diverse way of thinking about opportunities. But it's really my passion that I'm able to really present because I do believe in it. And it is how I operate and it is what I want to, you know, message to the market. So that is, you know, a really exciting, you know, part of kind of having the own platform that that we're we're both trying to build at our own shops. So so we talk about that, but I have to ask, you know, obviously COVID's had a major impact on, uh, you know, the first year of operations and, you know, how it kind of changed, changed businesses. So I'm curious, uh, you know, how, how have you guys found it operating in COVID? And, you know, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about deal sourcing, you know, in a little while, but just what has been the challenge for you in launching in a, you know, COVID related environment? Yeah, as, as you can imagine, launching during COVID was, was not easy. And one of the things that Colleen and I did almost immediately was bubble together. And so that allowed us to go into our office daily and be able to work live and collaborate more effectively. Um, that makes things a lot easier for us. And I think it was also a nice icebreaker for many of our Zoom calls early on as we were just launching as people saw us sitting together. Um, on the deal side, besides the obvious limitations of not being able to travel to meet the founders in person, what we found challenging was trying to underwrite some of these businesses and really thinking through what the normalized COVID period performance could look like. And that was for both businesses positively as well as negatively impacted. The other challenging part with, with COVID was not having a clear playbook for a path to recovery, just given the macro uncertainties around the vaccine rollout timing, the borders reopening, et cetera. And so we primarily focused on businesses that weren't materially impacted by COVID so that we could get comfortable from our underwriting standpoint without having to make significant assumptions that we weren't going to be able to substantiate. Um, we'd be curious to, to hear a bit more from, from you, Josh, just giving you a launch around the same time, what challenges that you faced um, during this period. Yeah, you know, getting deals done in uh, 2020 was uh, was tough. Um, 
you know, early on, we were looking at some opportunities. Uh, we ended up putting in submitting uh, bids on uh, nine companies in 2020. Um, two of those deals closed in the calendar year. I think a few others have subsequently closed in 2021. But of the two that closed, one of them was one that we got done in July. And then there was one other that, that went to a different buyer. And, you know, all the other deals got sidelined for a period of time or sidetracked and and you hit the nail on the head what we saw was really you know two things happen either you know a company was benefiting from covid they might have been in the medical space or you know some other environment software technology that really got pushed because of what was going on with covid and so now all of a sudden valuation expectations went up and it made it really hard for buyers to kind of get comfortable. Is this a one-time bump or, you know, is this coming back down? I can't buy off of, you know, sort of the increase in performance. The other side of it was you had a lot of sellers that said, hey, my business is suffering because of this, but it's not real and I'm not going to reduce my, um, you know, valuation expectations. So I'd rather kind of put things on hold and, you know, see how the market plays out. And, you know, our, our investment banker friends had a, you know, fun little term early in the process called COVID adjusted EBITDA. And I was never quite able to figure out what COVID adjusted EBITDA was. And uh, it made it really difficult to underwrite and, and diligence that. So, um, you know, that was definitely a challenge. Uh, I had never done a virtual management meeting in my life. You know, I had many of those last year you know, heard of stories of people closing companies with ever actually visiting the facility or doing anything face to face. So I think those challenges were were really interesting. And I think, you know, overall, just a lot of people kind of nervous about how the year would play out. And so anytime there's nervousness, um, you know, I think it, it impacts things. But that was our general take of sort of how the world operated uh, last year. And you know, fortunately, I think we're we're finally past some of those dynamics and maybe headed back to a uh, a bit of a return to normalcy. I mean, travel seems to be changing. There's a lot more kind of in-person things I think starting to trend up from my perspective. Um, you know, I'm curious as you looked at you know deal sourcing uh, last year, how did you kind of handle that? I mean, that was obviously difficult, not being able to get out to trade shows and doing a lot of phone calls, and you know. I'm sure just like you and Colleen, I've known you for, for several years now, and we both have kind of deep networks, you know, went to business school together and, uh, you know, but most people aren't knowing us for our new firm brand name. So now it's like, we got to go out, we got to share the story, get the brand name out of there. And last year was particularly difficult to do that. So I'm curious, you know, how you approach deal sourcing, you know, in that environment. Yeah, no, um, <laughs> It's a hard question, right? I, I really wish we had some unique ideas to share with you in terms of sourcing, but I mean, the truth is we've spent the past year living on Teams and Zoom, right? And in fact, we found it to be quite productive to just be able to click versus have to walk to a coffee. But we've done all those virtual panels, the events, the wine tastings, newsletters, and, and podcasts like this, right, to get our name out there. I mean, as you mentioned, with the vaccine and rollout in New York going so well, we're finally starting to meet in person again, but I, I think it will, we'll continue to do a hybrid approach to all of our meetings for the next few months. One thing that Sarah and I have been really disciplined about, which I haven't done historically, is just, you know, we set aside several hours a day to actually deal source and solely deal source, not answer emails, not do any calls, right? And so, as I mentioned earlier, our goal is to do two to three deals a year. 
And if we assume, you know, a 1% conversion rate, we're looking to source 200 to 300 deals a year. Um, but just being disciplined out about it, making sure we're reaching out to everybody. Um, but unfortunately, I don't have any super secret sauce here to say, you know, look, this, this is, this is what's working great. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think my experience was similar. Um, and, you know, for the first half of 2020, you know, I was by myself. I had some resources with, you know, our family office partners um, and everything. But in terms of the pure Lancer capital brand, it was really myself. So trying to deal source. And then we closed the deal in July and, you know, managing through closing that deal and continuing to try to keep the pipeline open. And, um, you know, it was a challenge. And, and you, you made a great comment, like you really have to be proactive and dedicated to kind of spending those times and checking in and deal source and, and get your name out there. Um, you know, I hired my first team member in October of last year, and it's been a huge relief from a deal sourcing standpoint. Um, you know, the, the uh, guy named Jackson Bennett, he joined my team and Jackson has been great uh, really working with us. Uh, you know, in his time that he can dedicate to some deal sourcing. I mean, he does, he wears a ton of hats on a small firm, as you know, you guys all wear a ton of hats too, but having people that can spend that time and focus on, you know, how having those conversations to work with those people is, uh, is really important. It's funny. You mentioned the virtual wine tasting. We actually looked at a, uh, a business that came out and the, the revenue growth of this virtual wine tasting company was, it was like 10 X in a year. I mean, it went through the roof because everybody was trying to do it. And, but I, I did appreciate people's efforts. Like, all right, we got to do something. We got to try to deal source. Let's get creative and figure out how we can get our, get our name out there. Um, but like you said, I think things are, you know, changing a bit and, um, you know, going forward, we're going to be more in person, at least for hybrid for a while and then see more in, in, in person. But as you know, I'm, I'm curious, uh, how do you see COVID maybe impacting your business uh, going forward, how you operate, you know, positively and negatively? I mean, things are going to change no matter what for businesses coming out of this. And I'm just curious to get your take on, on where you think this, uh, you know, this may go going forward. Yeah, I, I think as Colleen briefly mentioned, I think we found relying more on, virtual meetings to be very, very productive. Colleen and I have been able to meet with people at quantities that we would have never been able to do in person. And so I think from that, we'd love to, to take part of that learning with us into the post-COVID world where you can continue to utilize technologies and, and using video and actually turning our videos on to simulate a little bit of being in person with people. Um, so I think that's definitely one of the, the key things that we were very focused on. Um, and it's funny because before COVID, I never turned on my video on calls. It was something that was just, I thought was, you know, all the tech firms turned their videos on and you Zoom all day and I would dial in with the mobile friendly link on my iPhone. Um, so I think that that shift in mentality for me was really significant and I, I really um, have a different view on it now. And I think it can make us really, really efficient. I don't think it can replace being in person. And so I think for us, as we were working on our first deal that we got our, our under LOI late last year, um, we still wanted to meet with the management team in person. And that was really important for us. And so we had to get creative with, you know, it's raining outside, but let's find somewhere that's covered and it's outdoor and we can sit further apart because sometimes you just need to meet in person and, and be able to get a sense of how that person is to understand. Body language is really important. And so um, 
really looking forward to being able to do that a bit more. Yeah, I, you know, I would agree with all that. Um, the, the challenge, I mean, that some people get comfortable and have gotten comfortable doing deals virtually. It's not something, you know, in our model, um, we really, really prioritize relationships. Uh, you know, I, I say this to, to everyone we do a deal with or we're talking to about a deal, and I 100% mean it. If we get to the closing table and you're worried a lot about what's in that legal document or you feel you're going to need to open it after closing and this is purely a financial transaction, we're not the right partners. I mean, it, this really is beyond you know, just let's find a good deal and let's put a deal together. You know, we really want to partner with the people we're working with. We want to be able to sit down and have good relationships with them and get to know them. And so for us, it's really important, you know, that that we're meeting those people and having the chance to, you know, develop those relationships. And, you know, one of my favorite things to do and, you know, when we meet with owners of businesses and management teams is do the the management meeting dinner the night before, not because we sit there and talk business, I just want to learn about people's families, what you like to do. You know, if you like sports, we can talk sports. If you like traveling, you know, we can have all those conversations. Tell us about kids, grandkids, all that stuff. It, it's more important to me to kind of understand who a person is. And that was really challenged. Um, and I don't see ever necessarily getting away from that. You know, we had to get kind of creative and different people had different levels of, of comfort around, you know, meeting in person during that period of time. Uh, but yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's, that's going to continue to be a critical thing for us, but I'd say the other interesting thing is we just added a, you know, another employee this week to our team. And then we have, you know, another individual joining us later this summer. And, and we're really excited about, you know, the team that we're building, but inevitably in all this conversation, it was like, well, how much do you expect me to be at the office? Like not in a bad way, they're fine being at the office, but it's just entirely right. changed people's perspectives. And, you know, my, my view now is I sort of don't care if I had a much bigger team, it might be a different dynamic, but with a small team, we can kind of operate anywhere. We talk on the phone, we talk on video all throughout the day. And I think that dynamic's going to, you know, change for a lot of businesses beyond just our business, the, the opportunity to open up talent acquisition. If I don't need somebody sitting in an office next to me, I could now hire somebody with a ton of talent on the other side of the country and, you know, feel really good about the team that I'm building. And I think a lot of business owners are seeing that and creating a, a new level of confidence because it was almost forced on them to have to get comfortable. And it's like, hey, this worked out pretty well. Companies were able to adapt and I feel good about, you know, working with, uh, you know, working with people, you know, remotely. So I'm curious, you know, as you see the rest of 2021 and I'm just asking some off the cuff, you know, uh, questions here. How do you see the rest of 2021 shaping up? What do you think the deal market's going to be like? Um, you know, how do you see your deal flow? Taxes are a big thing I'm hearing right now. It could drive a lot of activity through the end of the year. So I'm just curious how you see the, the market shaping up through uh, the remainder of the year. Yeah, no, no, that's that's exactly right. I mean, we've seen deal flow pick up tremendously this past quarter. Um, as I mentioned before, you know, we're trying to source 200 to 300 deals this year. I think year to date, we're at close to 150. Um, and there's no doubt that with these, you know, with the new tax laws and capital gain laws that, you know, both private equity firms and entrepreneurs are going to be looking to exit come this fall and winter before any changes. So we're expecting a big increase in deal flow. Uh, everyone's busy now I, at, from what I can gather, but um, we think we're going to see more businesses come to market in the fall and winter. 
Yeah, I, I yeah. we're we're seeing something very similar. Yeah, Sarah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, I was just, I was just going to add to that. I think that's absolutely right. I think particularly family owned and, and businesses and founders are um, more you know thoughtful around the cap potential capital gains implication. But I think just from a macro standpoint. I think we talked about some of the challenges of doing deals last year from being able to underwrite businesses and really understand what a playbook for recovery looks like. So there was a lot of pent up demand and an incredible amount of dry powder and liquidity in the market to do deals with historically low cost of capital. That I think that the ramp up that we've seen in Q1 with the M&A activity will just continue um, to increase as people are trying to put up dollars and, and do transactions um, to make up for sort of the slow first half of 2020. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think I, you know, share the same sentiment, um, you know, on on everything you just said. And I think through the rest of the year, uh, we, we are going to be busy. Um, you know, we continue to be busy. And as a small firm, it's always a challenge in trying to work active deals and and things that we're moving forward on, as well as continuing to review new new deals. But our pipeline is definitely uh, picked up. We're we're busy. We're seeing a lot of a lot of activity. And I think also later this year. You know, a lot of the traditional networking conferences, be it ACG or M&A Source and other ones, they're planning to go back in person, you know, later this year. And I think that's going to continue to facilitate, you know, even more activity uh, going forward. So. That's right. We just signed up for our first in-person conference in September or October. Which, which one are you going to? The McGuire Woods Independent Sponsor Conference. Well, that's great. Well, uh, we will be there as well. So we're, we're really excited about that one. And uh um, you know, we have, there's actually two trade shows that week. We have two of our guys that are going to be at the M&A Source event in uh, Houston. And then two of us will be at the uh, McGuire Woods uh, show uh, in Dallas during that time. So we're, we're excited to, you know, finally get back to do some in-person meetings and, and see how it goes. Um, well, this has been great. I'm curious as we wrap up here, you know, we usually just like to leave the last couple of minutes for final words of wisdom, um, maybe messaging if if there's an owner uh, that would be a prime target uh, for you guys to invest in their business that might be listening to this or lawyers or accountants or whoever might be thinking about, you know, reaching out to you guys about a deal opportunity. If you want to share exactly what, what's the perfect scenario, whatever it may be, whatever you want to communicate, would love to get your insights just as we, uh, you know, wrap up here, you know, on Riveter Capital and, and who you guys are. Yeah, thanks, Josh. Um, thanks again for having us. This was this was fun. So as we mentioned in the beginning, Riveter Capital, we're focused exclusively on investing in women or minority owned or operated businesses in the lower middle market. Um, my, I think my I think my last word of wisdom would be, you know, if you're thinking about starting your own firm or company, I'd say just do it. Like it will be just as hard as everyone tells you but it will be just as as rewarding as everyone tells you. And also it's amazing, but you'll always be surprised where your biggest disappointments come from. And on the flip side, where your biggest wins or successes come from. What about you, Sarah? Any last uh, words of wisdom? I, I'm not sure how to follow that. I think that that was perfectly said. I think for me, um, it was finding a partner that was extremely complementary to my skill set. And also was very aligned from a values style of working personal goals. And so um, if you want to find a partner, make sure it's the right partner and think through long haul. But it, I believe that being an entrepreneur is difficult. And if you can have a co-founder that you can share a mission with and build something together and uh, you know tackle that road together, I think um, 
having a co-founder can also be a great way to, to start something. Yeah, it's great. And I would echo a lot of those uh, sentiments just about, you know, starting your own firm. It's, it's funny. I'm guessing you had the similar, similar experience guys, but once you launch all of a sudden, a bunch of people that, you know, maybe kind of similar experience level are reaching out and, Oh, what's it like to start your own firm? And there's a lot of interest in, and I can tell it goes through a lot of people's minds. And uh, I think there's, there's a lot of folks out there that do have an interest in, you know, maybe getting out and, and making it their own story and their own, uh, you know, platform and um, same, same advice. If, if you're willing to do it, th there's a lot of capital out there. Uh, people are looking to put money to work in good deals. And if you think you have a compelling story to do something, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to go build, build something that you can be passionate about and you can own and, and you can really tell your story. So uh, yeah, great advice. And um, you know, certainly if anybody uh, is looking to get in contact with you guys, uh, maybe you just want to share your website or email so people can reach out uh, if they do want to do want to get in touch. Yeah, sure. It's um, www.rivetercapital.com and then relatively straightforward. Hopefully it's Colleen at rivetercapital.com and Sarah at rivetercapital.com. With an H. <laughs> there you go. Well, guys, listen, thank you for joining us today. Um, you know, really glad we could do this. Uh, it's always good to chat with you guys. And, you know, we're, we're rooting for your success and uh, look forward to seeing all the great deals you guys are going to be doing uh, going forward. Thanks, Josh. Appreciate it. Thanks, Josh.